Good afternoon. My name is Rebecca Lowe. I'm the Adult Program Coordinator here at the Lewis Public Library. Thank you all for coming out to our Ask a Scientist panel, also known as Stump, Stump the Scientist. That's what we're going for. That's what we want tonight. Um, this is part of our Universe of Stories uh, program that we've been running all summer long. This is an American Library Association theme for the summer. It's all about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo lunar landing. Um, so we've been doing all sorts of programming this week. This is one of them. Uh, if you want to stay afterwards at 6 o'clock, we are having our astronauts speaking um, at 6. And then next week, one of our panelists who worked on the Hubble will be speaking on next Wednesday at 6. And then our last event for the summer will be on Thursday at 7. We're doing a screening of Moon Machines, the last in the series. So I am going to step aside, but not until I have turned this over to our good friend, Peter, the, co the host, and Mike, the producer of MythWits. So take it away. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is, uh, uh, this is Ask a Scientist panel. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Bryant. I run the show called The MythWits, which is a live video broadcast that we do every Monday night on Facebook. Um, and you can watch it on YouTube as well. And it's, we interview anyone that geeks would be into. There's a lot of scientists, comic book artists, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a fun show. It's a little bit adult, which is why we try to tone this down for the kids. But it's not crazy. You know, it's just every once in a while. There might be a bad word or two here or there. Uh, but uh, our producer is Mike Kafis. Yeah, so he, he runs the show. Um, and he's a, he's, he's a new producer because I used to do it, but I turned it over to him. And it belongs to him now. So anyway, so let's let's talk to our panelists. So uh, my first panelist is Dr. Jennifer Biddle. She's associate producer producer. See, I did it again. Associate professor, University of Delaware College of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. Next to her is Doug Miller. He's a retired professor, University of Delaware College of Earth, Ocean, and Environment. And then there's Dr. Thomas A. Evans, professor of botany and plant pathology. University of Delaware Department of Plant and Soil Sciences. And then uh, Russell Wormuth, Aerospace Engineer, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And then Jack Clemens, author of Safely to Earth, The Men and Women Who Brought the Astronauts Home. And on the end, Mike Mullane, an Air Force officer and NASA astronaut who flew on three space shuttle missions. So everybody, thank you, and let's welcome our guests. So this is going to be, uh, you know, ask the scientist. So this is a Q and A. So we have two mics, and you're welcome to come up and ask questions. Uh, I'm going to, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to do somewhat the same thing that, that I did before, but we'll do it a little more up level. What, what is the the best thing? Because uh, before I said, what's the coolest thing, you know, for kids? But what, what is the best, most interesting thing about your job that you get to do, or that you enjoy doing? I'll start off here. Um, so the best thing about my job that I get to do is honestly teaching students, which is why I'm a professor and not working in industry. And I think also one of the best things about being a scientist is that we get to search for truth every day, right, and to find absolute truth and uh, explore the universe. I have a very similar best thing, and it's, it's working with students and talking with our graduate students and undergraduates we have. Uh, that's why I still go in, as I'm a retired professor now, but I still go in to talk to students and mention them and advise them. That's really wonderful. Very fortunate. You can tell the academic faculty, students are the primary reason. I'm in academia, not in industry, not in government research, but my split is about 70-30, so I get about half my time with students, more or less. I squeeze that all out, and the rest is all discovery. And discovery is what makes life interesting in science. You never know which way it's going to go. And you have to nail things down solidly before you can move forward. I also was in academia, so I have to start out with that. I was an adjunct professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. But my current and recent job was to train the astronauts and build the tools for them. I should say my team. I led the team that did that, and that was for Hubble Space Telescope servicing missions. In my opinion, I couldn't have had a better job. So I've got a lot of cool things that I can tell stories about, and uh, like always like to inspire either 
young kids or older kids to um, get into STEM? So the most exciting thing for me is when I was in high school, uh, space travel was a science fiction. Uh, it's it space travel by humans, particularly. And by the time I got to college, I got a chance to not make it science fiction, but make it science. And I had the opportunity to work both on the Apollo program and on the space shuttle program, both in Houston, both across the street from the Manned Spacecraft Center, supporting the folks that were actually going to go into space to include the gentleman you're about to see. Yes, Jack here brought me home safely, as this book is titled. Appreciate that, Jack. I'll be a beer. Um, Obviously, being an astronaut flying in space is an uh, incredible experience. If you had to, if I had to pick one moment in those flights, though, that was absolutely um, you know, very moving and, and, well, emotional for me, uh, if you stick around for the 6 o'clock program or read my book, you're going to find riding rockets. You're going to find that uh, early in my life, I had a passion for space flight. I wanted to be an astronaut very early. Uh, I brought up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there's a vast desert right outside my door where I could go out and look at these early satellites twinkling through the twilight, dreaming of being an astronaut someday, uh, flying in space, and then on a shuttle, on my second mission, it was, it was tilted the equator such that I actually flew over my hometown of Albuquerque, so completing that circle of looking down on this exact spot in the desert where as a kid I used to look up and dream of being an astronaut, now I'm up there looking down. That was a closure of a life dream come true, and obviously that's a very, very incredibly emotional thing. So I was really blessed to have experienced that. All right, so being a disaster scientist, do, does anybody right off the top of your head have a question? If you don't, I can lead off with some questions. But all right, come on up to the mic. Hi. Uh, I'm wondering, does NASA plan to go to Mars? And if so, what are the biggest challenges? Okay, the answer to your question is yes, NASA does plan to go to Mars, but first we're going back to the moon. And that will take us to a place that we certainly know a lot about. As you know, just last week we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 landing on the moon. And we will use that as a base, essentially, for another type of vehicle to get us to Mars. I just add that getting to Mars, I think uh, it's going to be a lot longer than what NASA is publicizing because of money. I mean, you can solve a lot of problems if the money's there, and not NASA just isn't being funded like it's the moon race level. So I think it's going to be be a while before we get out there. But when you think about it, the, the enormous challenges of that, uh, every, for example, everything that you touch today, you've got to have probably close to three years uh, of it. It takes a minimum of about six months in the best planet alignment. And correct me if this is wrong, if anybody thinks it knows better, I think when the planets are aligned, the shortest trip is like six months to Mars. you got another six months to come back. And while you're up there, you got to wait, I think it's 18 months approximately, for the planets to line up to make that short six-month trip back. So you're looking at a better part of three years. You think that you need water, oxygen, food, clothes, toilet paper, everything that you're going to touch today, you need three years' worth of on, on that vehicle. You need a safe place in case there's a solar uh, event that could fry you. Uh, you have to have a safe place to get to inside that, that spacecraft, uh, and then you, just the the uh, engineering challenges of that massive machinery that you got to sit there and can't fail. It's got to work. It's not going to be a place that you're going to be able to stop and repair it. I mean, I'm sure they can do some repairs, but it's a, it's going to be an incredible challenge. Is it possible? Yes. It just takes money. That's all. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> about. Uh, Four or five years ago, I guess it was, there was an explosion of one of the unmanned un spacecraft. And one of the astronauts on the, un on the International Space Station made a statement, space is hard. Um, it's, this is, we're, we're not talking about trying to figure out how to fly to Cincinnati. We're trying to figure out how to take something that weighs a lot, it, get it out of, of uh, get it off the planet, into orbit, and that thing alone is very, very hard to do. And we've seen 
occasions where Apollo was able to do it back in the day. But interest in that program died as soon as the as soon as the uh, uh, the end of the center, the end of the decade comet Kennedy's uh, challenge had been met. People even then stopped paying attention to it, didn't care, and there was never a plan to stay. It was only a plan to get there, even at the time. And so, space space is such a difficult environment to live in that is unlike anything we have on Earth. That it doesn't care about your political game, uh, games or how much you really want to get there or whether NASA says we're going to do it two years or five years. It just doesn't care. Space is, is neutral on that topic. It's just hard. And so I believe, yes, I think we'll go back to the moon. I think we'll go back ultimately to Mars. We'll go to Mars. But I wouldn't bet on it being on anything like the schedule that we're currently talking about. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that what the biggest I mean, there's the challenge of taking all that stuff there, but there's also the massive challenge of the radiation exposure to the astronauts. That's three years of massive amounts of radiation that they'll be exposed to. I, I, my understanding, that's one of the hardest nuts to crack. And if some of these other folks down there want to discuss the possibility of having some virus or, or Mars or whatever, uh, yeah, I, I have no idea what the protocol for I imagine they're not going to allow people that have been on Mars come back and just um, land on Earth without staying in orbit for a while. You, you can go ahead and just address so that, Jen. This actually lets you know how odd my job is because I'm trained as a microbiologist. I'm a professor of marine science, and I recently served as an expert for the space sample returns for the National Academy of Sciences. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar, when we brought back lunar samples, we actually had them quarantined, and everyone was really worried about them. And little bits of moon dust was, were fed from everything from plants to zebrafish because they were really worried about it. And so what's fun is, of course, we had people from the Endangered Species um, Committees and everyone else worrying about what happens when something comes from Mars. And so to let you know, before humans even get there, we're going to send some robots. And if you actually look at the statistics between the US and Europe, that not everything has made it in terms of robotics to Mars. So just keep that in mind. Um, we have a pretty high failure rate so far. And we have some awesome successes, like Spirit and Opportunity. Um, but with the next planned rover going to Mars, what it's going to do is it's going to drill into the Martian subsurface. So we know the surface of Mars actually has a lot of um, very reactive uh, products on it. If there really is anything that is microbial, it, it would be small cell life if it's there. It's probably in the, in the beneath Mars surface. So this machine will go and it will drill in different areas and we'll have a team of experts sitting watching the video from home telling them where to drill, where they think the most likely remnants of life would be on Mars or active life if it's there. Uh, but it gets back to that money thing. It costs a lot of energy, money, time to get things off of Mars. So the plan right now is that the U.S. government is sending the rover. It will drill and take samples. These samples will be closed in specially designed chambers to prevent radiation from disrupting them, and then that's it. The hope is that someone in the international community, or hopefully the U.S., in terms of wanting to be competitive in the international community, would then support the building of a rover that would go back and be able to collect the samples and bring them back to Earth. At which point, then, we'll probably go back into some sort of containment uh, issue in terms of trying to show that these samples are actually safe to be around, and of course, the way we do things now, we're not going to probably feed it to plants or give it to zebrafish to see if they die. We're probably going to see if it has any sort of um, DNA-like molecule in it or any other organic material that could be defined as a life-type form. Uh, and so that's what we've been talking about, is if you bring back something from Mars, can you even tell if it came from Earth or came from Mars? And we don't really know exactly what that's going to be like right now, but that's a few years in the future. But just keep in mind that that's the current U.S. plan that is actually in action right now, is to go drill on Mars and leave the samples there. We don't know who's going to go get them. Hey, I have a question. Um, so, if so talking about, um, you know, we, we, everybody, whoever's seen The Martian, seeing that, you know, he grows potatoes on Mars or whatever, but this brings up a better question. If we were able to, uh, to change, make soil on Mars, because soil is something a plant can grow in, not just dirt. So if we could, if we could grow plants in Martian soil, because I know they've been doing some testing on this, what are the challenges of that? Because I know there's, some, there's materials in that soil that maybe we don't want getting pulled up through the plant, that we don't want to eat. Is that, is that, 
Tom, but I think you'd be I, the one to answer this. I would, I would suspect they'd be, they are doing more in the way of hydroponics because water is going to be a bigger issue also, but small scale recycled water uh, with the right filtration system, but you've got to get some of it up there if, unless you've got a source, which we don't. Um, soilless mix is something, but that's something you've got to carry. Um, planting in natural Martian soils, I doubt that would have worked the way they showed it in the Martian. Um, there are a lot of things that are weird in that movie to begin with. You don't plant all your potatoes at one time, just going to tell you that. Um, but there are many, many problems, but there are a lot of people working on it even now. It's more logistics, weight, cost, um, efficacy. But you can produce a lot of plant material on very little water in the right efficient system with recycling of everything. Do we have any other questions? Anybody? Uh, we'll have you and, and oh, this, was, this is actually a follow-up on contamination. Come up to the mic. And if for some reason you can't come to the mic, uh, Mike will bring you the mic. Mike will bring you the mic. <laughs> yes. The other day on CNN, there was a little blurb that said something like the Israelis sent a probe to the moon, and there were little some things. Watergrades. Tardigrades. 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 Yes. Tardigrades. Tardigrades. What is? Tardigrades. They're called tardigrades. That, that's it. That uh, escaped or were left, and that actually that opened up uh, the, the topic that we have left a lot of stuff up there. Oh, yeah. And I didn't have a chance to explore that, so I wonder if you all could touch on that and um, remark on what, uh, what effect we've actually had on what we've left behind. Have about a two-hour rant on this. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, there's a couple of things to unpack here. One of which is what have we sent up and how have we cleaned it? All right. So there are really clean space flights, and again, I'm a microbiologist in marine science, but I've actually been very involved with JPL um, missions to try to put rovers together. So. Uh, we have what we call clean rooms, right? And the NASA standard right now is to go and swab the outside of the metal and then determine if there are any bacteria from that swab. So this would be like um, you coming up to the table saying, is there anything here and does it grow or not? Then to let you know that on an average surface like the table or this microphone or God forbid the doorknob, don't touch that. So there'd, there'd be a lot of bacteria. But when we do this in a clean room, typically, the um, swabs will be deemed safe in that there is a low level of what they call bacteria. However, when you go in and look at it for other molecules, so you don't require the bacteria to grow in the condition you're asking it to grow in, and you just look to see if there's any biomolecules there, it's been well proven that there's been bacteria on every surface we've launched. So, we probably have sent bacteria into space, and there's been experiments where bacteria were exposed to the outside of the ISS, and they can survive the vacuum of space. So we have this issue of, we probably have sent stuff up. Our current planetary protection standards actually aren't up to the modern levels. One of the reasons is that it's more expensive to do the modern levels, and so, you know, it's not that bad, and, and most people, I think, don't necessarily worry about bacteria because it's actually really, really hard to ever get a completely clean environment for bacteria. Um, so we've probably already sent bacteria to the moon and to Mars with all of the instruments we've sent up. Then the question is, does it matter? So much like the tardigrades. So tardigrades are amazing if you don't know about them. They are one of the most fascinating animals out there. They're in almost every soil. You usually see more of them when the soil gets wet. You can go and look at them in a microscope. And what is amazing about them is that these are these tiny little organisms that survive even when they're dry. So they can dry out, and then they can get rehydrated, and they're just fine. So they're, they've also survived the vacuum of space. So tardigrades might have spilled on the moon. We might have sent bacteria to the moon and Mars already. But the other question is, does it matter? There's not much water up there, right? So they probably the tardigrades will probably never rehydrate. You know, what we've probably done is screwed up an alien civilization that will come millions of years from now and find remnants of them on the moon and then wonder how that civilization was built on the moon if there was no water. Um, and the same thing with the bacteria that are there. That's one of the concerns we have with bringing samples back from Mars is knowing that we might have thrown a couple of bacteria accidentally onto the surface of Mars. If something comes back from Mars and looks like Earth, we have a problem. 
right? If it comes back from Mars and looks really different, we might have some luck of saying it actually came from Mars. But if it comes back and looks just like Earth, does that mean that the same life is everywhere in terms of microbes? Or does it mean we already screwed up Mars? So probably the bacteria aren't growing on Mars as they are right now. The surface is pretty um, unfriendly. Probably nothing happened. So probably we're okay. But this is actually what I get paid to spend my time thinking about is how are we going to tell if it's the same? What does it actually mean? Like, can I? Uh, my wife, Denise, uh, specializes in, among other things, foods. Um, and she and I had a conversation about this very thing. It says, if, if, you, if you were going to a state park today, the rule is you, you bring in and you take out. You take out what you brought in, nothing more, nothing less. You leave it the way it is. That's what you do in a state park. So the question is, are you really going to land on Mars and then start putting uh, the latrines out? Or I mean, you'd starting to already then, if you did that, start to affect that that cult, that soil. And that soil may have nothing in common with our soil with the inside of it. So we may be generating plants or or something that is alien to us and alien to Mars. So the question is, how do you go about? How do you go about doing that? And we were talking about maybe you'd have to take a spacecraft and put it in orbit around Mars. And that's where you put all your waste. That's how you get rid of everything. And then you let the space, the, the, the uh, people, and then treat Mars like the, like the national or the state park. Let them go down and do their explorations down there, come back up, but not actually reside on the planet until we really knew what the heck we were doing. Or we may end up starting to not know, if we keep that step up, there's no telling what we're going to run into because those bacteria, those plant, whatever, may not interact very well with what we put down there, and now we got something that's both of us. Jack, that's where we build our space elevator. What we've been talking about, you yeah, go up there, true. lower gravity, be yeah. much easier. That's true. Your astronauts can go down and up. Mm -hmm. oh, can, can, you got a question coming up here, but just, just one second. I just want to make a comment, uh, kind of a segue on, on what's being discussed here is uh, there's a there's an organization out there called for all moon kind and flipping this uh we have lots of junk that's been left on on moon on the moon lots of it tons of various things have crashed there been left there over the uh, apollo missions and such uh but some of that's and obviously some of that some of the sites are hold great great reverence uh historical reverence i mean the first footprint on the on the planet uh on another alien body the moon Neil Armstrong's footprints there, and so there's other stuff. Well, what's to prevent right now? What prevent you know, SpaceX or somebody, you know, one of these other countries, just launching a robot, loading it out there, grabbing their artifact, bringing it back to Earth, putting it out for auction? So they're trying to protect all these sites that we, well, most of the sites, the, the historical ones certainly, to prevent that from happening through international agreements, uh, working through the UN to come up with everybody's space-faring nations to sign agreements that they're not going to go up there and bring back uh, Neil Armstrong's uh, a cast of his footprint or something and sell it on, on eBay. So just thought I'd throw that out for all moon kind is the, is the organization that's pursuing that. Okay, you had a question first, sir? I did. And I just want to remind everybody that, that this you can ask us anything, any science question. Try and stump, try and stump the panel. They, they know a lot of different sciences, and maybe together they'll work their heads together if you give them a really hard one. But go ahead, sir. Yes, I'll try. I, I just saw a science show that talked about a really big telescope being built, largest ever, in a high-altitude desert in South America to study deep space. And my question is, why wouldn't uh, we just use the Hubble or build a bigger Hubble as opposed to something within Earth's atmosphere? Okay. I'll try to answer that. <laughs> so pull up his model. Uh, <laughs> I have a Hubble. I just happen to have a Hubble Space Telescope here. Little models. The real telescope is 45 feet tall. It is orbiting the Earth right now, 340 miles up. And we do have not a replacement to Hubble Space Telescope, which has been up almost 30 years. We have the James Webb Space Telescope, which is entirely different than Hubble. And it is different in that it doesn't look anything like it. Its mirror is five to six times bigger. It is only infrared, 
whereas Hubble is partially ultraviolet, visible in a little bit of infrared. And you remember how high I said Hubble was orbiting the Earth? 340 miles. Now let's take a guess as to how high this next telescope, which we plan to launch in March of 2021, will be. How many miles above Earth? 22,000. Take a guess. I, I said 22,000. We got 22,000 here. Correct. 22. Going 22. Going 22. <laughs> beyond, beyond the moon's orbit. Yes. Beyond, beyond the moon, which is 247,000. Anybody else? Any, uh, no, it's way higher than that. Are we going to stick it in one of the Lagrange points? <laughs> yes. Now, how high? Oh. Between <laughs> Earth and Mars, like halfway between? No, it's not. Not at Lagrange point one. <laughs> Lagrange points are points where gravity is balanced. We're putting it at L2, Lagrange point two, which is one million miles from Earth. Nice. One million. Now, the telescope has to get out there a million miles, so those of us in the satellite or servicing business have no way to get there unless somebody's grandkids are going to be involved in robotics, possibly. And guess what? It doesn't fit in the fairing of the rocket provided by the European Space Agency to get it a million miles out there. It's an origami project also. It's an engineering challenge. We have to do it right the first time. It's going to be a million miles out, and it's going to be looking further out in space than my friend Hubble is looking. So you're, say, you're saying that they built the, space, the, the spacecraft to a dimension before they, anybody bothered to check the size of the ferry and the hold it? That's, that's, that, that doesn't instill a lot of confidence in this project. That happened above my pay grade. <laughs> Actually, it is a joint European Space Agency NASA project. And ESA, European Space Agency, has the responsibility for the launch site, which will be French Guiana in northern South America, and the French launch vehicle which is an Ariane 5. So whoever negotiated this had to realize that James Webb, as it was envisioned, would not fit. But like I say, it's an engineering challenge. The origami project means things have to be scrunched up, folded together, and then as it goes out a million miles, which takes about a month, it has to unfurl, open up, and make certain that it is correct and operable. I mean, don't mean they talk about kilometers yeah, yeah. and we talk about miles. Yes, well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, take a mic. I'm an engineer, so I talk in miles. Right, but, you know, you're talking about the European, you're probably thinking about kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It happens so, for NASA, right? So the, yes. the, the question is, the system of measurement for miles and kilometers. As an engineer, I usually talk in miles, and I think it's 900,000 900, kilometers. No, it's other way around. All right. That's, that's why I don't think in kilometers. <laughs> right. so, so do we have any, uh, any other questions? You want to you come up? There was a great movie just a few years ago in IMAX that was called Space Junk. So if anybody was interested in knowing about the problems of space junk, I highly recommend it. The question I have uh, is that if we're so interested in the analysis of the soil on Mars, since we have soil you know, rocks from Mars here on Earth, why can't we do that analysis now? Uh, I think I, I think I read somewhere that they were they were trying to duplicate Martian soil here and to see what the problems would be, which is where some of these issues of like some of the heavy metals that are in the soil 
were coming up and they were worried that it would migrate up through the plant. The, uh, we come from Richfield, Connecticut a few years ago and one of our members of the temple had a bunch of Mars rocks. Uh, you know, so I spun the camera from the ceiling build a library. And looking at the rocks, I would say, well, why can't we look at them? So a couple of things to do there. One of which is if you had one rock from Earth that was going to represent the entire planet, what would you pick? Probably a diamond. <laughs> there are actually really cool diamonds we just discovered a few years ago. You should look up the discovery of kimberlite. It turns out it's made when the plates slide down into the center of the earth, and they were found, I think a couple of them were found at the surface in Brazil, and no one knew how they got there. They had to discover there's a new way to make diamonds. But anyway, so again, going back to Mars, do we know exactly what's there? So if the rock comes from Mars, it has to get off the surface of Mars and come to the Earth somehow. So if there's, let's just say, an asteroid impact on Mars, it's going to eject the rock with enough force to get it to travel towards Earth. But then, as a few of us have experienced, there is the problem of re-entry. So the rock that we see has been cooked through the Earth's atmosphere, and it's not going to look the same. right? So it's, we don't know exactly what's on Mars, which is why we've been sending robots up to look at that, because there's going to be components of the soil that would be really important that could have been lost in that process of traveling through space. Anybody else? Come on. Going back to the um, telescope, is the reason it's infrared because of the phase shift of the light coming from the stars and having to do with the distance of them from the telescope? The reason that James Webb Space Telescope is only infrared is because essentially we're looking for heat signatures and we're looking way back in time and in distance. So that Lagrange point is the best environmental place for it to be somewhat stabilized. And also infrared is the best wavelength for us to receive information about things that far back in time and space. I got a question for you, Russ. Uh, this Hubble Space Telescope, you talk about looking back in time. It, it, I believe they've seen back, what, to a half a million years after the Big Bang so far? What's the deepest they've seen so far? I, I think it's like 13 billion years, and we think the Big Bang is 13.8. Yeah, so it's your, my question is if you can see back to the Big Bang, or what, I mean, what do you see? Is it just going to be this blackness because it hasn't occurred yet? <laughs> well, I can't answer that because it hasn't occurred yet. Stop <laughs> <laughs> <Help> the scientist. <laughs> that is that is amazing. By the way, uh, one time I was trying to explain that to kids. Uh, you might try it too. Is that if you had a telescope um, sixty-five million light years away, and uh, Somehow, it's so huge that you're able to collect the light that's been reflected off the Earth. And a scientist, an alien scientist, looking through that telescope at Earth is looking back 65 million years. So what are they going to see? They're going to see dinosaurs. It's that, that's hard. That's, but getting your head around that, the distances involved. You know, they would, they would be able, if they had a, it's obviously, right now, I can't imagine it's possible, but looking back at collecting light that reflected off the Earth 65 million years ago, and they would be imaging, not us, but they would be seeing dinosaurs walking around. Amazing. I kind of hope they do. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I have a question. So, um, you know, climate change is affecting our oceans. It's affecting the pH levels. It, it's, so, so what is actually happening with our, with our ecosystems in the ocean? What is, what is our, if the current trend, trend continues, what does our oceans, what do our oceans look like in, 50 years, 60 years. What, are, what kind of, what are we looking at? Well, they'll, they'll be a little bit warmer and a little bit more acidic, right? A little bit warmer, we've already experienced that now, a little bit more acidic. Those are two of the, the main, main issues. Uh, both of those will have effects on the organisms that live in the ocean. Probably the temperatures involved changes in, in uh, distribution, things moving toward the poles rather than uh, 
moving from where they are now toward the poles to cope to maintain. The, the rate of change that we're experiencing in that now is greater than the rate at which the organisms can adapt. So the response is largely to move. And we see that in the island, uh, the desert islands, the mountain islands in, in the southwest. Vegetation and organisms are moving up, and eventually they'll run out of space. Uh, in terms of uh, acidity, ocean acidification is a big issue. Uh, mostly it's been, you think of ocean acidification and, and dissolving coral reefs and that sort of thing. But it also has implications for oyster fisheries, shell fisheries. Uh, ocean pH affects the ability of fish to navigate and to find their homes or their natal streams. So it can have a lot of different different effects. So we're looking at a very different ocean if it keeps going. If it keeps going the way it is, yeah, could be. And for me, one of the things that keeps me up at night is not necessarily worrying about coral. Sorry, I'm a microbiologist. Corals, you know, they've been around. Corals they can aren't work. getting anywhere. <laughs> yeah, they're going to love. So, um, but if we think about just what, what a coral is, it's calcium carbonate. Right. And so that carbonate is a solid material, much like you're able to make your bones and you know other your teeth and other parts of your body. And a lot of the ocean bottom is carbonate because it's shells that had been parts of animals and then it dropped down. So think about the white cliffs of Dover. Those are all ancient organisms, shells from ancient organisms that formed into a cliff. Well, if you drop the pH of the ocean low enough, you're actually going to start dissolving the sediment at the bottom of the ocean which is going to push more CO2 into the ocean in a rapid pace. So that worries me because corals aren't a huge percentage of the ocean floor, if you think about just molecules of carbon. But ocean bottoms like the White Cliffs of Dover that used to be at the bottom of the ocean are. So that keeps me up at night, that that would be rapid, massive ecosystem change. And then the other thing that keeps me up at night is the warming. So when we think about what's going on at the bottom of the ocean, there's a lot of methane gas trapped under the sediment. And the good news is, is microbes, which are awesome and better than corals, um, eat most of that methane. So only about 10% of the methane at the bottom of the ocean ever gets to the atmosphere. So we don't have to worry about it that much. But if you speed up the temperature, if you increase the temperature and you change the pH, we don't know how that's going to affect the bottom of the ocean. And it might mean that the microbes that are eating all the methane right now and protecting us might not be able to keep up and that methane could explode. And so there's some parts of the ocean that could just release huge amounts of methane that would go right into the atmosphere and be even worse. So I think it's important to understand that while we worry about things like corals not being able to make skeletons, it could get much, much worse, much, much more quickly. And methane's a greenhouse gas. Yes, yes. and methane is, is worse than CO2 it's for greenhouse gas. Yeah. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> it's actually, it doesn't smell It all. doesn't? I thought it did. That's my farts. No. Those are the See, that's, you learn something new every day. All right, so. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's another one. I have a follow-up uh, follow question here. Um, so I saw a TED talk about reverse desertification and that it might be a powerful tool to combat climate change. Now, is this... Crazy thinking, did you, have you all heard anything about this or had any thought of this? They were talking about like taking deserts and turning them back into green. There's no There's everything! Wait, 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 wait. Well, so, okay, so we think about this in terms of how ecosystems shift, and we know that in the U.S., for example, some areas that are now deserts used to be plains, right? And some areas that were used to be plains are now forests, right? So ecosystems shift over time. And so this idea of reverse desertification is, is a a decent one. We know if the desert gets rain, it can support life. And so if you've seen anything like the California super bloom that happened earlier this year, we know that when areas get more water, they can come back to life really quickly. Um, the question is, anytime you are putting efforts into something like that, you have to put in a lot of energy. And right now, a lot of our energy is actually coming from things like fossil fuels. So anytime we come up with a solution for climate change that involves a lot of energy, I get concerned. Yeah. yeah. Because that balance is always going to be shifting. And so there's this great idea that, yeah, maybe we can make the deserts green again and everyone will want to move into areas that were previously uninhabitable. Um, but we still have to deal with issues like the temperature increasing and acidity changing. And so I don't think that's the only answer. And again, any solution that requires greater energy input is 
maybe not the best thing to try first. Man, no free lunch again. Okay. All right. So do we have any more questions? Anybody else have any can questions? I, can I ask a question? Sure. What about on the surface? I mean, what about the plants and this, you know, if this continues to go on? What about plants? What about uh, agriculture? What about trees? What about, you know, do we then become a desolate area like, you know, a Sahara or something? What happens there? This year will be the first year on record for the United States, not looking at world data, that we produce less edible materials in agriculture than we consume. We've never had, they're in the last 300 years, um, which is not a good sign. So that means, that means for the planet, it's slightly worse than that. And the effect on agriculture itself has already begun to be difficult in America with climate change, meaning wetter, drier, hotter, colder. There's, there was a freeze up in Manitoba last night. And that's bizarre at this time of year. So it's the other direction at that moment, yet we're steaming in the south. But agriculture is challenged in the United States. You can only imagine what it's like in developing countries. We put a lot of energy into doing and trying not to have climate at all impact our agricultural production systems, whether you be talking about plants, animals, etc. For countries that are not so lucky to have that kind of economic input into their agricultural ecosystems, they are being challenged even more uh, than you can believe. So the tipping point, we won't see the damage to agroecosystems nearly as quickly as somebody in sub-Saharan Africa will, or other places that do not have the ability to try to modify the environment to make up for the problems in climate change. Um, but we can only do so much of that. In fact, now we're looking, USDA has redrawn all the uh, plant hardiness uh, maps again. They're not out for the public, but everything is moving north. So, you know, sure, we can grow vegetables, you know, maybe all the way up into the Midwest in not December, January, but the rest of the season. And other things will be pushed further north, and then some things will not be able to be grown in the south. We can adapt north-south, but then you still have all the mix, too much rain, not enough rain, too much heat, not enough heat. Growing temperature days this year is going to be, they still think it's going to be a problem for some major crops like soybean because they got in so late that they have to have enough calendar days of heat, and there's, not a lot, there's a lot of heat now, but there hasn't been enough over the entire growing season. So heat is not always the problem. It's climate variation. And our growers, which do large-scale agriculture, count on things being more uniform than a small-scale farmer in Ecuador and the Andes would. Now, they can deal on a small scale much easier than large equipment-based agriculture, which is what we do to feed large populations and to keep food prices relatively low. I used to say cheap, but it's not cheap anymore. So it's a big question, and the economics of it is, is driving a lot of us to figure that we're going to have massive problems in the next five years if something doesn't tip the other direction. As we pass the 2050, which we think will be the max population, at least for a while, in 2050, our entire society, both the international society that I, I've been in leadership with the last 10 years, their, their driving mission is food security. And all of agriculture, but in particular the developed world, is looking at increasing production by two to 300% to make it over that 2050 hump. But with climate change, that's the problem. We can't predict how efficient our farming systems will be. Or Mike can bring you a mic if you can't make it. I have that first. Okay. Okay, so once upon a time, I got this information, I don't know if it's true or not, that water is a constant. We use water, but the same water comes back, so there's no net gain or loss of water. What is going on today in India, where there's whole areas with millions of people who can't get a drop of water to drink? What's happening to river cruises in Europe where all of a sudden they have to take the people off the cruise ships and bust them because there's not enough water in the river to float this cruise ship. Where's our water going? I'll start with this one, but in the order. Yeah, feel free to jump in. Okay, so uh, water is a constant, as in is everything else on Earth other than hydrogen. Hydrogen is the only thing that we are constantly losing to space. 
keep that in mind. It's also having a horrible uh, issue in worldwide markets, and it's really important for things like MRIs and blowing up, uh, or helium, I'm sorry, is a big issue with uh, blowing up balloons. So that's been an issue too. All right, so water is a constant. It doesn't leave Earth, but it moves around. And so as someone who has hair like this, I can tell you a lot of the water we have goes into the atmosphere. And over the last 50 years, water in the atmosphere has been increasing. But as we know, water in the atmosphere might cause my hair to be frizzy, but not necessarily make rain. Right? So it goes through this process of having to condense back down and drop back down. And since this whole cycle has shifted in terms of where water's heating up, where it's evaporating off of land or the ocean, the heat has shifted, so the water has shifted. And winds are actually shifting too, and so everything is combined in what creates things like storms, right? Which would bring rain to the rivers in Europe and, and fill them up or, or causes local droughts or other, other issues. All of that's shifting, and so the water is moving around. And so if anyone followed what happened in California in the last five years, they went through a severe drought. So much so that they were pumping water out of the ground, from deep in the ground, to the point where the state of California actually started rising because the water wasn't weighing it down anymore. This is how serious these things are and also how big these scales are. Well, all of the water from California was getting blocked from coming into it by what was called this really resistant ridge, which is an area... If I can have your attention, please. The library will be closing in 15 minutes. <laughs> no Please continue. They have a water problem. <laughs> anyway, so again, so the water wasn't necessarily landing in California because the atmosphere was blocking the moisture, or the atmosphere was keeping the moisture from coming out over the ocean to get into where California is. Well, the winds have shifted, that really resistant ridge has broken down, California is now getting more water. So things like this are going to keep shifting, and we can just bring this back to this idea of do we understand Earth? And I think the answer is, not really, right? Because we have developed things like weather prediction based on what we've known, right? On a relatively stable climate where things happen and our plant hardiness zones were consistent. And our ability to understand what's all going on now is shifted because we haven't been in this scenario before, right? This is like the difference between raising your own kids that you know all the time versus watching the neighbor's kids by the afternoon where you don't know what they're trying to do at home. And so you can't predict necessarily what's going to happen when you haven't seen that situation before. So know that water is moving around. Some places are getting too much, I'd argue. I don't actually know. No. Missouri. Missouri is getting too much. That's true, actually, if you've seen the Midwest. Midwest is Maryland's getting too much. Yeah, I, I think Delaware is getting too much, but I found a better dehumidifying product for my hair, so that's better. But, <laughs> but a lot of it is actually still stuck in the atmosphere, so it's going to be floating around as water vapor until it comes back down as rain. So this is a long-term cycle that's going to happen, and it's been moving all over, and that's why a lot of times, if you've ever heard of someone called it some, you know, climate change or global warming, a lot of us have started just calling it global weirding to get through this idea that, again, we don't necessarily understand what's happening because it's all changed. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I spent a little time as a HVAC engineer designing HVAC systems, and a lot of stuff that we had to do dealt with what's called relative humidity. And as air gets warmer, its capacity to hold water goes up. And it's exactly the same reason why, counterintuitively, you'll get stronger snows and more blizzards in, in the wintertime if the air is warmer, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, well, why, why would we get more snow if it's warmer? It's because it's still within the snow range, it's just warmer than it, than it normally would be. And especially in the water, when, when the air is warm over the water, it's your coastal areas, you'll notice, or areas around large bodies of water that'll get hammered by this snow because the air can hold more moisture and thus you get more rain, more snow. And it's not depositing, like you're saying, it's not depositing in the places it used to deposit in. And then you also have glacial melt. So a lot of these, like you're saying for the European uh, cruises, a lot of that's glacial meltwater or, or, or mountaintop meltwater. And if the mountains are getting warmer and they're not forming the glaciers that they normally form, they don't hold the water that they used to hold, and your rivers suffer. Well, the nice thing is if you decide you have to move to Canada, at least it'd be nicer. Yes. <laughs> you can take the Northwest Passage now. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to build a wall. <laughs> We're gonna have to pay for it. <laughs> All right. So as you heard the announcement.
we're coming pretty close to time. We've got a few more minutes. Does anybody want to get any questions in before? It's your last chance. You've got an astronaut here. Anybody? Come on up. Hey, Jeff. Astronaut. Oh, come on, like, are you going up again? <laughs> you want to go up again? Yeah, I, I have long retired from that, so I left it. I, I was I flew in the very early shuttle program. I, my first mission was in 1984, second was in 88, and the third one was 1990. And so in sequence, it was the 12th, the 27th, and the 34th mission. And after I retired in 1990, uh, we, we ultimately flew 135 shuttle missions, so there were Mind blast for the 34th, so there were 101 missions after I left. So I've been long gone, gone from NASA. Don't you want to go? Would I like to go? Sure, I'd love, love to. Yeah, I mean, all I got to do is win the lottery and buy a ride on uh, SpaceX or something. Yeah. Sure. I apologize for interrupting. That's fine. I'd like to just take each of your temperatures. Um, and given the current political climate of non-scientific or anti-scientific that we're facing, and our crazed climate situation, our non-participation in um, attempting to rectify the situation, combined with uh, general almost a hysteria on one hand and an absolute refusal to face reality on the other. As informed individuals, uh, how concerned are you? What kind of time frame do you give us uh, that we really, really need to resolve this situation? Yesterday. Yeah, seriously. Yesterday. Just yesterday. I don't know if you followed that uh, USDA just shifted NEVA, the National Institutes of Food and Agriculture, and the statistical branch, its sister, uh, to Kansas City with a 30-day notice to go. That could be good, could be bad, but the thing that's bad is that we will end up, I know, I just came back from a meeting where I got the numbers, we will end up losing two-thirds to three-quarters of the best climate change scientists studying the, the fat in the United States. Now, they may go to private industry and do it, but they're not going to be paid for by our government. From NEPA and from the statistical branch that is also in the USDA, those are all the big numbers people. Where were they before? They were in D.C. Foggy bottom. 30 days notice to re relocate your entire family or quit. And they're not, they're not paid a ton of money. It's not like, oh, it's a great you know, financial career move for me. Two-thirds. Two why, why did they do that? It's not a political show. They don't stop. They're, I think I heard one of the words is it will be more economical. That's what they said the last time. So it's cheaper to live in Kansas. You know, it's DC. Is, I did hear for sure that DC is the most expensive place to house this many people working in science. And I've heard them say that it'd be cheaper. Sonny said that. He's also geographically in the center of the United States. I don't know, that might be an advantage, it might not be. Um, but anyway, but the outcome is two-thirds to three-quarters of the best scientists within USDA, particularly related to climate change, but other things as well. So, and also pushing out grants to help people do research on that. NEPA does the grant side. I'd like to make uh, a, a comment on, on something you brought up there. Is I, I, as an astronaut, I'd be kind of a public life going out and talking to people. And, Initially, when I retired, I was being asked questions that I thought were, they were just jokes. You know, people would ask me things. And uh, it, it rapidly became apparent to me how scientifically illiterate our nation is, and probably the world. I mean, really, really illiterate. Uh, and yet, as we all know, or certainly should know after hearing, hearing this panel, is that there's a lot, of, a lot of decisions that need to be rooted in science. And that's why can do your part by making sure you encourage your kids and uh, grandkids to make sure that they get a deep, deep root in science and understand that decision making at the political level should be you know, based on science and some of these things because literally the future of mankind depends on it. Yeah. So uh, it's just something we all need to do, get our kids to start thinking about science and, and make it be critical thinkers is what it's all about. Don't be emotional, but be 
critical thinkers employing the scientific method to, to make decisions. And also just a reminder that everyone's going to have to get used to getting uncomfortable because some of the first things to go are going to be the good wines, chocolate, coffee. Those literally are going to be the first things to go. Not coffee. Not coffee. <laughs> Coffee's pretty endangered. Bananas are too, but that's probably not a big deal too. But yeah. We're also but, yeah. we're also fortunate to live in Delaware. Uh, we're, a, we're a state here that it's, that does seem to understand all this. That we're we're led by a team at the top at least that is trying to make trying to make some of these these uh, make it easier for us here than it would be, for example, if we were living, say, in Texas. Um, so at least we have an opportunity here among us to have these kinds of conversations and get some general consensus on it. It doesn't change the problem overall, but we're in a better place here than we might be several other places in the, in the United States. Hey, I'm a Texan. I was born in Texas. <laughs> so you think it's all good. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to give I'm gonna the last question to our producer. Mike, go ahead and ask. Hey, guys. Um, I'm going to ask the panel, within your respective fields and or scientific uh, passions and preferences, what innovations uh, and inventions do you feel like are just over the horizon but are the most necessary for our uh, survival and, and, our, and our comforts? But one of the biggest things that has happened in the last few years is this invention of CRISPR. So I'm happy to tell you more about CRISPR if we're running out of time, though. So it is the ability to just change everything's genome. I know everyone's worried about that, but it is also a way that we have a chance to really improve medicine, improve plant yields, improve a lot of different things in a much rapid um, experience, much more rapid experience than we ever had before. I'm not sure it's a, it's a thing, but it, I would hope that people would have an increased understanding of the scientific approach, that we don't always get it right the first time, but it's an iterative process, and over accumulating knowledge and people working for years and years, we come up with, with good ideas and good answers that are better than just flying by the seat of your pants. Um, I think along with that comes an appreciation of quantitative skills and math, Science. I wish more quantitative savvy. Savvy. You've understood numbers. Even we up here get numbers wrong occasionally, but over time you get more right than we get wrong. Uh, in the era of big data, this kind of double dips on CRISPR. But I, I tell my students now that if, if you don't like GMOs, don't worry so much because most of the breeding now is not informed. It's informed differently. It's informed by big data. In other words, we can rely on traditional breeding methods, except for to get the traits, we have to find the traits. And if we can't find the traits, then we can use CRISPR to, to tweak some genes that we already have. We don't consider that to be a GMO, although we haven't, who knows what's going to happen in this administration. Europe has deemed CRISPR-modified plants as being GMOs. The EU has. But of course, they don't like the GMOs, so they have their own perspective. But for us, pretty much everything we need to do in breeding we can do traditionally, but informed by genetics, genomics, bioinformatics, and do it much faster. And it's time that makes the difference, as long as you can find the genetic material you need. And I tell people, except for Roundup Ready and a few other traits, with CRISPR involved, we can do this all much faster, which allows us to adapt to changing climates more quickly, which is what's necessary now. As a NASA engineer, I think the innovation or invention that we need for future space travel is a faster way to get places. And space is important because we find out things about what's out there, things that can help us back here to improve problems on the Earth, and we can also, in some of our missions, look back at Earth. And we are doing that. So, but to get to space where we always explore, and Mike, I have to mention that in our discussion before, when I said I didn't know because we haven't seen it yet, what I really meant was we always, always have to explore. And that's what we have to, as, as it was mentioned before, impress on our kids, our grandkids, to have that innovative 
idea to get involved in STEM and explore for the Earth, for the space, for space, so that we can improve for the future. So, so I think there are two opportunities for us. Um, one, I believe, is we, we, we can't easily change the larger environment in, that's going on in our, in our country right now. We can, though, do something locally. One thing we can do is make sure your children and your grandchildren focus on science and try to keep them focused on what reality is, regardless of what they see on Facebook. Right? The other thing, though, is what we can do is try to reach out to people near us who have differences of opinion about this and say, what do we have in common? What are the things we both care about? Not so much you do this and I do that. Okay, but where are our common things? What can we do? Just reach out to, to people that have their different opinions than you, maybe people that are living in a different part of the state than you, and say, how do we preach that? How do we, what, what is it that brings us together and not just the things that are pulling us apart. The library is now closed. Please proceed to the next <laughs> Thanks, Morgan. Yeah, all, I, I'm just going to make a little brief. I, I would echo what Russ said there about getting the, we need dilithium crystals. If anybody can find those so we can get warp drive, that will really make it a lot easier to do some of this stuff. But uh, that would be, we need some advancements there, and I don't know what those are, but uh, hopefully some very brilliant children and grandchildren of ours will come up with those answers. And everybody have a wonderful, uh, I, I guess you got some closing comments yet, but, but uh, have a wonderful evening. Wonderful evening. Awesome. Okay, so I want to thank all the panelists for coming out. Let's give them a big round of applause. I want to give them one last chance to, to mention anything they'd like you to follow up with. Uh, I know some people are selling some books, maybe, but uh, there's also uh, things they'd like you to check out. So I'll, I'll just leave it up to my panelists to go down. Um, we at the School of Marine Science and Policy down at the end of Pilot Town Road have a big open house. First Sunday in October, you're all welcome to come see us. There are these flyers, and there's a big poster right out there. You'll pass it on your way out of the building if you want to pick one up. It's free. It's family-oriented, family-friendly day. It's Sunday, the first Sunday in October, so put that on your calendar. Then we have tours during the week as well. You get the contact information on those. So that's just putting in a plug for our institution. I'd like to add a few things. Uh, first off, if you have kids or grandkids and you're close, well, if you're close to Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, where I work, you're welcome to come for a visit. If you have kids or grandkids in schools here in Delaware, uh, my current job is to do public and educational outreach for Hubble Space Telescope. There's no cost. I'd be glad to come to that school and give a talk on Hubble. And if you come back next Wednesday night right here to the library, I will be giving a talk on Hubble Space Telescope. I could talk all day about it. I was just going to make a comment about my books. If, uh, there's two books I have out there for sale. One I browse about uh, bookstore. One of them is titled Riding Rockets, The Outrageous Tales of a Space Shuttle Astronaut. That's my memoir. It is not appropriate for young kids, okay? You might want to read that. It's, I tell people it's sort of R-rated in places. It has some language and circumstances and, and uh, situations and humor that are more on the adult side than kid's side. So you may want to read it first before you decide what age appropriate it is for your, your child. Then there's another one, Do Your Ears Pop in Space? It answers 500 questions I've been asked as an astronaut. Answers them in a very simple, easy to understand way. Complicated questions, but easy answers. And uh, uh, that's available. That's uh, for anybody. Any, any adult child would be able to get, get into that. So I just wanted to be aware of that. And also at 6 o'clock, if any of you can at 6 o'clock, I'm going to be doing a program in here, uh, uh, have some slides, videos, and 
tell my life story and what it's like to live and work in space and answer the popular questions like uh, how do we pull off fake in the moon landing, uh, about, about those aliens I rendezvoused with, and uh, you know how do you go to the bathroom in space and eat and, and all, all that. So I'll answer some popular questions there. Uh, it'd be a fun program but also very informative. So if you can hang around for six, uh, you know, welcome. welcome. And my book, Safely to Earth, the men and women that brought the astronauts home, was also for sale out there. I will tell you that it covers both my Apollo and space shuttle days, and my compadre here plays a big, big role in that whole space shuttle world. Uh, so you'll also see a lot of Mike Millay in that book. He also reviewed it, he added stuff to it. Uh, and mine is suitable for all audiences, <laughs> because it's not a tell-all. It's simply to get a feeling of what it was like to work at that next level of, 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 of work supporting NASA that wasn't astronauts and it wasn't the people in Mission Control. Yeah, it's a great book. I've, I've read it. Mike, Mike Reddy likes it, too. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us. And check out our show, MythWits. Uh, we broadcast live on Facebook, Monday nights at 9 p.m., uh, you can ask questions of any of our guests because we have a chat room. You can type in your question. We'll ask the question. Um, and it's not safe for kids either. It's, it's, we get a little raunchy a little bit. Look, not bad. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a fun show. And if you're into anything geek, we have comic book artists. We have scientists. We have anything that, that is geek related. Sometimes we do movie discussions. It's a fun show. I think you'd like it. And uh, thank you all. Thanks, everybody.